This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. It's nice to be back with you again, a little sooner than I have been of late. My hope is to keep that up and get episodes to you a bit more frequently as time goes on. My horticultural goal of late is to get a start of Virginia Spring Beauty, Claytonia virginica, in my yard. It is a native spring ephemeral, which means it can bloom and fade away before too much mowing interferes with it. Some bulbs planted last fall seem to have failed, but I discovered a section of Lexington where it is growing everywhere. This past week, I did a bit of urban foraging and now have a few plants settling into my yard. So far, so good. We've had wonderful response to our October Genoa trip. In fact, at the moment, we have filled up our small group with commitments. However, we are considering adding a second group for the week beginning October 29th. So if you are interested, please let me know as soon as possible so we can make a decision about that. You can email me at culturaldebris at gmail.com for full details. I pray your Lenten fasts have been successful ones. Although, as I heard a couple of good priests say recently, Lent is often a time of failure. That highlights, of course, our need for the events of Holy Week. Our poem is from T.S. Eliot, the fourth part of East Coker from Four Quartets. The wounded surgeon plies the steel that questions the distempered part. Beneath the bleeding hands we feel the sharp compassion of the healer's art, resolving the enigma of the fever chart. Our only health is the disease if we obey the dying nurse whose constant care is not to please but to remind us of our and Adam's curse and that to be restored our sickness must grow worse. The whole earth is our hospital endowed by the ruined millionaire wherein if we do well we shall die of the absolute paternal care that will not leave us, but prevents us everywhere. The chill ascends from feet to knees, the fever sings in mental wires. If to be warm, then I must freeze and quake in frigid purgatorial fires, of which the flame is roses and the smoke is briars. The dripping blood, our only drink, the bloody flesh our only food, in spite of which we like to think that we are sound, substantial, flesh and blood. Again, in spite of that, we call this Friday good. My guest is art historian Danielle O'Terry, who wrote a wonderful article published in the Paris Review about the unicorn tapestries in the Met Cloisters. Danielle and I discuss mystery and wonder, angels and unicorns, 
and a security guard named Howie, and a squirrel. Please join me as I talk with Danielle O'Terry. Danielle O'Terry, welcome to Cultural Debris. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. We appreciate you being on all the way from uh, from the Northeast and um, I guess the, the Jersey side of the river now. Yep. We've just moved over after a lifetime in New York City, so I still have to get used to telling people I live in New Jersey. <laughs> well, it, you know, of course, I'm I'm not a New Yorker or New Jerseyan, uh, or is it New Jerseyite, I, uh, but you know, I, I always feel like that there's, um, I guess there's sort of a little bit of tension between New York and New Jersey. Is it, does it cause, um, sort of mental anguish to be, to move into New Jersey or, or is that, um, or is that overblown for us, for us folks here in flyover country? Oh yeah. New Yorkers, we love to make fun of Jersey. It's sort of, (laughs) I think, I think everybody likes to make fun of Jersey, don't they? Oh yeah. Total punchline. But It's actually not, I mean, I think the joke is on New Yorkers and actually the, the quality of life in New Jersey is pretty good, especially compared <laughs> to the city. So I think uh, the Jerseyites are having the last laugh in the end. Uh, well, perhaps so. Perhaps so. They do. I mean, they do have their, you know, the Jersey Shore and, cult, and cultural icons such as that. So and it makes uh, food, actually, the food over here is unbelievably good. There's like big communities of uh, Koreans and Turkish people. And my goodness, I am really spoiled for takeout now for the rest of my life. Well, that, yeah, that sounds great. And I know that you have a particular interest in food and uh, I would, I do want to talk a little bit about that. You and I uh, share an interest there. Our, uh, our regions are a little different in their cuisine, but, uh, but maybe we can, we can talk a little bit about that. You are a specialist though in medieval art. How, how did that happen? What drew you uh, to to middle, the Middle Ages and and art history? Well, I started off in school as a graphic designer. I, I went to art school and got a degree in graphic design. But along the way, it's just part of my coursework. <clears throat> excuse me, coursework. I I took an art history class and I absolutely fell in love with it. And I'd always loved history. It was always my favorite subject in school. And, you know, I really wanted to continue studying it. But the the path that I was on at my university was really almost like vocational school. It was really all about learning graphic design. And then I graduated in 1999 with this great portfolio. And then the first question that I was asked on every job interview was, how is your HTML? And I'm like, I, mean, I, went to, I have this great portfolio and a degree and, and this craft that apparently expired while I was learning it. And uh, so I struggled and I did work as a graphic designer for a few years, but I wound up working for a .com where I was laid off uh, when the .com bust happened in late 2000, early 2001. And after sort of really struggling for almost a year, I decided to go back to school for art history because I thought, well, I've done the practical thing. 
that my parents thought I should do. And right. Everybody tells you do the practical thing. And then that doesn't always didn't uh, work out. And then I said, work. well, I'm going to do the impractical thing that I want to do. And I went to Italy and I got a degree in art history. And, you know, I, I don't advocate studying art history as a good financial decision necessarily, but oddly <laughs> enough, it has sustained me uh, far better than graphic design did. Uh, though I'm glad I, I, I am glad I have those skills. I have it come in handy in my later work as an entrepreneur. But the Middle Ages, um, it re my really my love for art history started with the Italian Renaissance. But I ended up getting a job at the Met Cloisters in New York City when I returned from Italy, and first just as a ticket taker at the front desk, and sort of worked my way up from there. And the Cloisters is devoted to art of the Middle Ages. And really, when you're talking about the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, those years are very flexible, depending on which country you're studying or even which scholar you're most closely aligned with. So it was a pretty natural transition. But 15 years at the Cloisters was how I became a medievalist. Well, yeah, there are worse worse things to do, I would think. I, I, I imagine that any plan that includes going to Italy for an extended period of time isn't a horrible plan. I mean, yeah. you know, there, there, there are worse things to do. I, I, I'm sure of it. Um, well, you know, being at the cloisters and of course uh, we want to talk about, uh, about the article you did for Paris review. You talk about being at the cloisters. Uh, how did you first, uh, I mean, was that something that you had sort of in your mind as a goal to work there or did it just kind of work out that that's where you were and, and things sort of fell into place? It well fell into place is probably sounds is what I would say now, but at the time I would say no, it was a lot of tears and struggling and trying to figure out how I was sure. gonna make a living. Yeah. Um it you know, it I guess it did work out in that at that time actually just being a, a ticket person at the Met actually paid you a salary with health insurance and mm. benefits. Like I got they put money into a pension, which they don't nice. do, I don't think they do for anybody anymore, frankly. I was literally the last person who received that benefit because it was supposed to expire when I was eligible for it. And I said, no, 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 no. I got hired when this was still in the proposal. Um, so yeah, it, it was again, sort of a practical decision in a way, but it, you know, it put me in the right environment and the world of arts and culture is a very, very small world. And it's, you know, it was a good foot in the door. The other thing is that because it's a small world, there's not a lot of places to go once you're inside of it. So it was a really good thing, but it wasn't something that was meant to last forever either. Right. Well, you wrote an article that is really, I guess, in large part taken or uh, at least inspired by your time at the Cloisters uh, and from the Paris Review in, in late 2020, on the unicorn tapestries uh, at the cloisters. So explain what the unicorn tapestries are. And I guess anybody who read your article realizes that's a pretty, <laughs> that's a pretty broad question, right? Or, or we're still trying to answer that, but for the sake of the, of the novice, what are, what are the unicorn tapestries? Well, there are two sets of tapestries in the world called the unicorn tapestries. And, and most people are usually familiar with the set that is in Paris, uh, which is more specifically called the lady and the unicorn. And they have this beautiful sort of reddish pinkish background and a field of flowers. But the unicorn tapestries that are in New York City are called the hunt for the unicorn. And they're a series of tapestries that together 
form a narrative of a hunt. And it, it follows sort of a typical stag hunt, but it's layered with allegory and myth. And the way they're traditionally interpreted is as an, an allegory of the Passion of Christ, um, an allegory of chivalric love. But this is all to say it's a mystery. It's all conjecture. It's all based on comparison and analysis. Uh, we know that they were woven sometime around the year 1500 for somebody very important and very wealthy in the French royal court because all of the figures in the tapestries are wearing the clothing of that time. But nobody really truly knows. Uh, they are also the jewel of the cloisters collection, which is a spectacular collection. So being the jewel of that collection is, is no small feat. They are very, very popular with visitors and people come there to see them. Uh, the images themselves, particularly the one of a unicorn encircled by a fence, sort of sitting in a flowery meadow is very famous. It's been on a million different like mugs. There was a needle point in the 70s that a lot of people's grandmothers had on the couch. <laughs> um, it's, it's a really famous image that people usually recognize when they see. And people really love them for their mystery as much as for how beautiful they are. And they are, they were always really, when I became a lecturer, they such a, they were a challenge to talk about because there was so much that was unknown. So unpacking what was known and that what could be all had to be done in a really concise way. And it was important to do so because people showed up there just to see them and were completely in love the second they set foot inside that gallery. So how did they end up at the cloisters? If uh, obviously they're they're French, and uh, how did they how did they make their way uh, to to New York City? Ah, this this is a great story. So they, um, like I said, appear to be woven around fifteen hundred. Main basis for dating them is comparison and fashion, but there's really no primary source record about them at all until, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump to sort of the highlights. During the French Revolution in 1793, they are in the chateau of a noble French family, the Rochefoucauld. The chateau is looted and sacked. The tapestries are stolen and they're, they're missing for about 60 some odd years. A later generation of the Rochefoucauld family is trying to find out what happened to these tapestries, supposedly. They ask the wife of a man who work, works for them, and she says, my husband has some old curtains hanging in the barn. Perhaps you should have a look. And there they found the unicorn tapestries covering up bales of fruit <laughs> vegetables and being used to cover up espaliered pear trees in the wintertime. So they return to the Rochefoucauld family, and they're there until 1923, when Gabriel de la Rochefoucauld inherits them from his uncle, and he decides that he wants to sell them because he wants to install a golf course. <laughs> and this is controversial because so much. This is civilizational decline, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I also do. I have some sympathy for him in that it was, you know, it's really expensive to keep up a chateau. And I think there was also, you know, some some debts in regard to keeping the chateau up. And this is also following World War One, of course, which devastated France. But yeah, the golf course is kind of an irresistible detail in this whole thing. <laughs> so it's a controversial thing because of World War One. So many people had sold pieces of France's cultural patrimony abroad, uh, specifically to American collectors, because people like 
John D. Rockefeller Jr., J.P. Morgan, the money, like most of the money in the world was in New York City on the east side of Manhattan. And, um, you know, at this point, you know, journalists and regular people are, are becoming really aware and rightfully outraged that so much of their their artwork, their heritage is being lost and sold off. So the Count knows that he can't really just like put these up for sale in a gallery. So he arranges an exhibition. I'm, I'm doing air quotes here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. For them to come to New York City. And he, he does this vis-a-vis an art dealer who has a relationship with an American sculptor named George Gray Barnard, who is not a household name today, but was at that time. He was known as the modern Michelangelo. And they kind of, you know, long story short, they sort of know that there's one man in the world who can, who will want them, who will appreciate them, who has this true love of the Middle Ages, and also who's got enough money, because the Count says he will accept no less than one million American dollars, which I don't know, I have to pull up the inflation calculator, but is a bananas amount of money in, in today's <laughs> dollars. And... uh and it's John D. Rockefeller Jr. And George Gray Barnard was uh, doing sculpture commissions for, for John D. Rockefeller Jr. So they arranged this, air quotes, exhibition. It comes to New York City. Basically, you know, the idea is to educate the impoverished eyes of the American public. And Rockefeller is given a private viewing before the show opens to the public. And they are purchased very quietly um, and this is entirely legal. There was nothing illegal about it, but, you know, there was reasons for people to be upset about it nonetheless. And the tapestries were removed from the walls before anybody could see them. They were then locked into zinc boxes and shipped across the ocean to London, where the sale was executed. And then a few months later, shipped back to New York. And they were in Rockefeller's private home on 53rd Street, which is now the present site of the Museum of Modern Art, for about... I believe 14, 15 years. So they were his own 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 world unto itself to enjoy. Yeah, they were just, just, in his just hanging there in the living room kind of thing. And not even in the living room. In his, <laughs> his prey, he would go to his, his routine was he would have dinner with his wife. They would chat or whatever. And then, you know, she would go to bed and he would go to his office to work for a bit. And he would sit there in this tapestry forest of the unicorns. And it was... Uh, he wound up any anyway buying the museum that is today known as the Cloisters. It began as a private collection, also owned by the sculptor George Gray Barnard. He winds up buying his collection, buying his property on the northern tip of Manhattan, which at that time was like being in the country. Um, and it's still a much more it's residential now, but you know, not like the rest of the city. It feels much more suburban, really. And they reorganize the collection. They decide that they're going to build a brand new building based on a composite of different cloisters imported from France. And the curator there, James Warmer, convinces Rockefeller to donate the tapestries to the cloisters and for this to be their permanent home. And he agrees. And they've been there ever since, except for a brief period when they were removed to an undisclosed location after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. You mentioned Rorimer. He he's an interesting guy. Um, you talk about in your article that he he ended up being one of the monuments men yeah. in, in World War II, which which is pretty fascinating. 
yeah, he was one of the, the major ones, one of the most important ones. And uh, um, Matt Damon played him in the movie. Oh, uh, okay. He didn't look anything well, I mean, like Matt Damon. I was about to say, you you must be doing pretty well if you have Matt Damon end up playing. Yeah, you know? no, <laughs> was, uh, was <laughs> You're saying this was non-representational as well. <laughs> yeah, it definitely wasn't based on his actual appearance. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's how he would have liked to have been viewed, I'm sure. Absolutely. Uh, Who wouldn't? Well, one of the things that I've learned in in reading your article is for um, for there uh, to be these tapestries focused on a unicorn. There's there's a whole lot of hubbub about a squirrel. So um, tell tell me about the significance of 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 this squirrel that uh, that keeps popping up in in your article. Well, you know, I I could have really chosen any number of details because there's. In this in this system, you know, the tapestries are incredibly dense. In every single scene, right. you've got plants and flowers, and most of them are real, but some of them are imaginary and, and birds, frogs, lions that look like monkeys. I mean, it's it's just endless. There are so many different details. And throughout the decades, scholars have focused in on one or two of these things and they've used them to make their point. And it's kind of like you could pick anything <laughs> to make a point at a certain level because everything, especially from the Middle Ages, is so loaded with symbolism. But I thought the squirrel in particular was fun because a, a woman named Margaret Freeman, who actually stepped in to be the curator of the cloisters while James Worimer was serving with the Monuments Men during World War II, and a really rare position for a woman at that time, even today, <laughs> there's still not, as, not enough women in those positions. Um, she really focused in on this squirrel and she just wrote this funny line. I just, it just struck me as really funny about, you know, the squirrel is here and it could be significant, but maybe not. And she really <laughs> You know, it's like this assertive paragraph to make a point that like, this is a squirrel and maybe it's got meaning and maybe it doesn't. But when I was speaking with Howie, the security guard, who is really the true subject of this article, right. he picked up on that detail and he, and he had read all of, the, all of the scholarship and had read this book many, many times. And he took that squirrel and he actually made sense of it. And he said that it was a symbol of the artist and the artist is unknown, but he said the artist is Jean Fouquet and that Fouquet is the regional word for squirrel in the area around Tours. And so I just thought, well, you know what? He's the only person who like really logically came up with a good answer for why the squirrel would be here. And then he even talks about its placement, how it would be in the place where the artist would sign a work of art. But at this time in the Middle Ages, artists didn't really sign their works of art. It's not like the Renaissance, which comes afterwards about the cult of personality. The Middle Ages is much more of a workshop culture, a collaborative culture. And I just loved that he took this idea that was said with such confidence in the scholarly world, but utterly meaningless really and assigned something to it or, and really thought about it in a deep way and figured out a way that it would make sense yeah you were you were talking and I, I couldn't help but laugh at this when you were recounting the story of um of this this rose that forms from uh, the wound of this dog that's involved in the hunt and that that it was an eighth grader who pointed it out to you and then you asked uh, your boss who'd been there for 25 years. And she says, well, clearly it's not really important because nobody's ever really talked about it before. It's not, if it's not in the scholarly literature, then obviously it's not important. And I said, well, you know, I've been working here 
at that time, I don't know, maybe four or five years. I'm like, and it's at eye level and I never noticed it. And now that I'm looking at it, it's like looking at the sun. I can't not see it. Yeah, you you can't. Once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. (laughs) It's really actually not hidden at all, hidden at all. And that was really like what I almost found upsetting. It really kind of disrupted my world about, wow, I'm really only looking at what I'm reading. I'm only looking at what people are telling me to look at. And I I didn't even realize that. It, It completely changed my approach and she had been there for 25 years. And what's really struck me was how she got her back up about it. And, you know, yeah. obviously it's not personal. Nobody did anything. <laughs> right. Like, you know, no, there's no gulag for not, you know, missing something in art history. Who can't, like, this should be a moment of curiosity, a moment of wonder, a, a moment of like, oh my God, like, we've got to look at these things with new eyes. And she really got her back up. And it was like, I, you know, she sort of treated me as though I had done something inappropriate. You know, it's interesting. It's getting a little bit ahead of myself on on, on this, but it's a it's a good illustration of how sort of official scholarship can be can wall itself off, and that's really. Um, and I want to talk. I want to get into talking about Howie, but that's really sort of what Howie ran into was that there was the official dogma about this and he's, he's the, he's not somebody who's, who's allowed to challenge it basically. No, nobody is really allowed to challenge it. And this is changing. Um, not enough, but at that time, sort of how I sort of came in on the tail end of graphic design in the way that it used to be done, I guess, it's, you know, just the, the nature of the time that I was born, but I really kind of came in at the very end of traditional academia when people were still, there was a certain generation of people that were still very formal and, and you almost, you know, there was a deference that you had to give people that had certain academic credentials um, as though they were really from an entirely different social class. That has definitely changed, but I was really at the tail end of that. And that's what I was bumping up against, which was there's this world of formality and there are rules and how dare you back off? Yeah, the the eighth grader asking the inappropriate question is not going to be allowed to overturn uh, all scholarship on on this topic. Yeah, well, and the idea is like, oh, you know, it's just some kid. Sure, um, he is just some kid who's asking a question, but our, our job is is looking and seeing and you know, what a fantastic way to make us look at things differently than to just look at them through completely innocent, untrained eyes. Uh, I did appreciate uh, how you, how you summarize the, the growing confidence in, uh, in unicorn tapestry uh, scholarship, which, you know, as, as, as each update is made, on the, on the wall plaques, uh, and the wall labels that they, that it just gets shorter and shorter and shorter that we, (laughs) we, we have, instead of growing knowledge about this growing confidence, it's just the opposite. It's just sort of shrinking away to here are some unicorn tapestries. Aren't these pretty, they might as well just say (laughs) at this point, look at these, aren't they nice? (laughs) Aren't they, aren't they pretty by, by the tote in the the, uh, (laughs) gift shop, right? Exactly. (laughs) So, and sort of going along with this same theme and really kind of leading into Howie, but you, you, you recount this sort of wild story about what would happen if, uh, if somebody, a, a visitor, uh, one of these eighth graders, maybe asked a security guard a question, 
what was the what was the official uh, what was the official protocol in that situation? Official protocol was that if they asked a question to a security guard, security guards could just answer questions about you know where's the bathroom, where's the cafe. So if they had a, a question about the material itself, about the collection, they were told to go to the front desk. And then somebody sitting at the front desk, which could be me when I was there as a ticket person at first, uh, would call upstairs to the education office. And if somebody was available, they could come down to answer the question. And the Cloisters is, it's a, it's a modern building, but it's, a, it's built out of a series of medieval ones. And it's meant to look like a Romanesque monastery. So it, it has a literal tower. It's not ivory. It's uh, a <laughs> limestone, but it is a tower. And so, you know, the, the call literally has to go upstairs to the tower. And if somebody's available to come down from the tower, they could and they could <laughs> answer the visitor question. Um, I was because I at that time was still in my graduate studies, but I was considered qualified enough to answer questions as somebody behind the desk. So sometimes I would do it if I were there. But if nobody was available, then you could offer them an audio guide. And, you know, that comes with an extra charge. And it just doesn't, beyond the money, it just wouldn't necessarily answer the question. Right. They, they were just asking a question. They were, that's all yeah. they wanted. <laughs> like, I don't want to spend another $10. And then where do I even go in this thing? You know, it, it was, it's not, it's changed also again. And, you know, now it's like you download it to your phone. But at that time, it sure. was this, this thing. And I, like I say in the article, the lanyards that go around your neck, nobody had ever washed them. They smelled, the box where they were stored smelled like a thousand sweaty necks. They were disgusting. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I never wanted, I always felt uncomfortable selling them because I just thought, oh, this is not the most useful tool. Now, I remember uh, going to museums and you get the, you get the little guided tour, uh, little headphones and the, the recording and so forth. You can walk your way through it. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. Since we've introduced this uh, this topic of of security guards, let's talk about Howie because Howie, as you mentioned, is really, um, I guess, the protagonist of your of your article. And Howie was in in the scheme of the, of the cloisters hierarchy, uh, merely a lowly security guard. And yet, and yet he becomes sort of the focal point here. Uh, tell me about Howie. Why, why does Howie matter? Howie is such a character and, and he's, he's hale and hearty. Uh, I've just sent him an email and he promised to write me back, but he hasn't done so yet. He is truly a character. He's, an incredibly interesting person. He his he comes from the Bronx. He grew up, um, I guess, almost as sort of a child prodigy. Uh, very very intelligent. I think he skipped a couple of grades. He went straight into from university at Fordham to graduate school at Fordham, and he went all the way through. He was he's ABD. He didn't finish his PhD um, in classical philology, and sort of stopped when he went to Italy. And as he said, he discovered how beautiful people could be. He had kind of really devoted his whole life to studying. And then he went to Italy and he was hitchhiking and he was kind of living, I think, a hippie life in the 60s in Italy and just really fell in love with life. And he didn't want to write anymore. And he wound up becoming a Latin teacher in New York area, um, like prestigious prep schools and a few prestigious Catholic schools in the area, in the tri-state area, and was a really 
apparently a fantastic teacher for this article. It was it's pretty long, but I actually trimmed probably about three thousand words. I interviewed quite a few of his students, um, some of whom are very successful people who never forgot him and really credit him with opening up their minds. And anyway, he sort of bounced around as these Latin programs were inevitably closing. Their funding was being taken away. The programs were dwindling. He just decided he needed to get to a place where he would have more financial security, and he wound up taking a security job at the cloisters. He lived in the neighborhood where the cloisters is and thought, well, this is easy. I'll clock in. I'll clock out. I'll get my benefits. I'll have my pension. I'll retire and leave me alone. (laughs) And he did, except that he also, being a very smart, intelligent, and curious person, to sort of study the collection as he was there. And he in particular became really fascinated by the unicorn tapestries because of the mystery, the same thing that attracts everybody. But he was also really taken by the fact that he was watching all of the museum's lecturers give tours of the of the tapestries and talk about them all the time. And he just noticed, and I always would ask the security guards actually for feedback on my own tours because they listen to everybody's tours. Multiple <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm sure they could be brutal. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. I mean, they could imitate certain people. They knew the, <laughs> the hand gestures. They knew which corny joke was repeated over and over again. But he was really struck by the fact that people just seemed to be repeating the scholarship and that he would watch these visitors with their eyes wide open and, you know, sort of looking at these things lovingly and asking questions and just constantly kind of having a door shut in front of their face because they were just, you know, being met with the same old scholarship, which really doesn't answer any questions. And so then he began to investigate himself. Now, how he, as I said, He's a character. So I can understand to some extent why some of the museum curators were put off by him when he would approach them very enthusiastically uh, and want to talk to them about his theories. And he really demanded that you pay attention to him as well, (laughs) because, you know, he had he'd put together these ideas. He needed to get them out in a certain order. I imagine being a teacher for so many years. He was used to speaking without being interrupted, especially teaching in prep schools and Catholic schools where there's definitely sort of a, a deference to your, to your professor. Um, and, you know, he, he, he wanted a lot of people's time and he just got this reputation after a while of like, Oh my God, stay away from this guy. <laughs> but he was undeterred and he talked to everybody. So every security guard on his shift knew about him. And then he would start to talk to the visitors. When the visitors would ask him questions, he didn't want to just tell them where the bathroom was. He'd tell them where the bathroom was. And then he'd say, hey, by the way, did you ever notice the squirrel? <laughs> he wound up getting in trouble for it. And, you know, through several warnings, almost lost his job. There were several complaints against him. And his manager, who just really had an affection for him and also knew that, you know, he needed the money, he needed the paycheck, uh, put him on the night shift. And he wound up working... Um, the evening shift at the cloisters because there's 24 hour security at, at museums so that he would not be brushing up with the public and getting himself in trouble anymore. But he continued to study. He continued. It it was just another opportunity where he was alone in the museum late at night. And I interviewed him. Well, I mean, we, we spoke for years really every every day at one point there was maybe a two-year period where we spoke almost every afternoon for a little while for maybe like 15 20 minutes as he was coming onto his shift in the after afternoon and i was leaving but then before i wrote the article i interviewed him for many many hours and recorded his stories and 
how he used the museum was just absolutely amazing. I mean, he was much more actually into music than to anything else. And he would bring music into the galleries, all different kinds, Zydeco music, symphonic music, uh, R&B, rap. I mean, you name it. He listened to everything and he would use the museum to play music and to experience music in different ways. He was constantly talking to the other security guards. And then he would, at the end of his shift, he would go to the local diner and he'd be having, sometimes he'd go to the bar and be up all night. And then he would go to the local diner and the waitress that was on, on the service at, you know, 6am serving bacon and eggs. He would tell her all about the unicorn tapestries. <laughs> and then the next day she would arrive at the cloisters to see them. And he would be there early uh, you know, in his regular clothes, ready to give her a tour. He was truly a teacher and that he wanted everybody to see and appreciate these people. So what what was Howie's uh, theory that that diverged so strikingly from sort of the the official story? Well, he, he had many ideas. He still has many ideas and he would probably get upset at me right now for not sharing all of them at length. I, I know even in the article he wished that I had shared more of his theories, but there was too many and I you know, needed to focus. But the one that really made me decide to pay attention to him and I also really kind of ignored him for a couple of years. He was kept trying to talk to me about the unicorn tapestries, but so many people told me that this guy was a kook and if you know you if you if you give him an inch, he'll take the rest of your day. <laughs> and I was, you know, young and trying to make a career for myself there. So I was, you know, taking the counsel of people that were in higher positions than I was. But the thing that really made me pay attention was he said, you know, nobody knows who, who made the tapestries and why, but I do. Because all of these images, these pictures that we see, people keep looking for other paintings or other drawings that are the source material. And they say that because they don't exist, they don't know where the tapestries came from. He's like, but where they came from were from performances. And he had really done a lot of really wonderful research to show how there had been these tableau vivants, these living pictures that were part of royal processions. So say, for example, uh, let's, uh, Louis XII, King of France, conquers a particular town. There would be a royal procession into this town that would have all sorts of imagery that would uh, be reminiscent of, of ancient Rome, of the chivalric tales, of the golden legend, uh, sort of the entire romantic, mythological, and religious language of that time and place. And these tableau vivants would be acted out, and then the tapestries would often be part of these processions. Sometimes they would sort of be the backdrop to plays. Sometimes they would be form a corridor, sort of function as a form of modular architecture. And they were all very integrated with all of the, with visual arts and performing arts were all very, very integrated. And so he said, that's the source. That was the source for these pictures. And he said to, the, said to me, and I, I loved this, I included this in the article, he said, imagine these images like the bleachers in a gymnasium, you know, how it, they're all, you can sit on them, they're like a series of steps. And then at the end of the day, the, the janitor pushes them flat up against the wall and they stay there. That's what the tapestries are. They are those plays pushed flat against the wall. Hmm. And what was so compelling about this is that, you know, in the world of art history, 
people only look at art. In the world of literature, people only look at literature, but these things were all very, very integrated. There were not these hard lines. Most of the lines that are drawn around academia today are Victorian. They had nothing to do with the lines drawn around. There weren't lines things drawn around things the same way in the Middle Ages at all. Middle Ages, one of the things I love about it is that it's so profoundly weird. I mean, people's spiritual mm -hmm. lives were very active. You know, things that we would call the imagination um, were very, very real for medieval life and medieval culture. So I really just thought he's thinking about this appropriately. He's thinking about it from the time and place where they originate, he's not thinking about it within the confines of scholarship. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, sort of going along with the idea that, you know, the, the past is, a, is another country. You know, we, we I think we have a hard time just imaginatively putting ourselves in, you know, in, into that culture, into that way of thinking. Like you said, everything's sort of profoundly weird. Um, th there's, um, there's not the same sort of scholarship lines or, or tracks of, of thinking. And, and people are, uh, I guess, religion is a, a much more immediate part of people's lives than, than people today are able to fully process, I think. And, and all of those things play into what they did, what they produced, um, you know, the, the the culture is the working out of those ideas and that way of thinking and and it's just hard for us I think to get our brains to think that way uh now and you know we don't really even know that much about it or even the way that i was taught we just i mean we we really focus on events we focus on milestones and moments and turning points but what I really love about art history is you're studying more the history of emotions. And so it, it's upsetting to me when scholars are very rigid about that, because I think we're already studying something that's kind of weird and trippy. I mean, trying to understand my own emotions on a daily basis is a challenge, let alone the emotions of, <laughs> of people that lived, you know, hundreds or even thousands of years ago. But the example I always like to to use to just convey like what the medieval mind was like is to is the example of how people regarded angels. Um, people in the Middle Ages studied angels to understand human origins the way we study primates today. There were orders, orders of angels. You could study angelology in university, and then you have archangels and, and, and all these orders of angels. And then if you look at our history, you'll see all these angels that are sort of in the margins that are in between that are whispering dreams into people's ears, which are messages. And you'll notice that they're also sort of like a gender. They don't really look quite masculine or feminine. And that's because the beings closest to God didn't have gender. And when you entered a church, the smell of incense was meant to signal the presence of angels. And you'll see in art history, angels always holding incense sensors, waving them around. So they would smell them and the singing of monks was supposed to be the sound of angels. And so they walked around a world where they very much relied not on sight, but on their feelings and their senses and their sense of smell as a signal for the beings around them. And they really lived with this vivid idea of these angels as being actually, you know, an integral part of their lives. We don't live like that anymore. Our minds right. don't function that way at all. 
But if you really just kind of just take, and that's just one example, right? This is how their minds were working. Um, we really have to look at history in a different way. Yeah, I think that that's right. I I I, I agree with that completely. That, that it's just uh, just the moment to moment way of thinking. It's so fundamentally counter to the way to the way we approach things uh, very often. And um, you know, in in the last episode uh, that I recorded um, of cultural debris, we talked about sort of the, the benefits of, of being a generalist. And that really plays into this same idea um, because you're to understand this properly, you're having to draw from all of these different aspects of life um, and, and the way that people simply lived things out in the moment. And, and that's why somebody like Howie, I think, is so valuable because he's he's coming at it with those well, like the eyes of that eighth grader. Why is this here, right? You know, he's not he's not constricted by the previous scholarship. He can see previous scholarship and think, well, that you know that idea is bunk. There's not there's you know there's no way that that's true. And um and, and I think that that's that that's highly valuable. You talk about the you talk about the, uh, I guess the, that he's dismissed for being an amateur. And I, I will say we're, we're big fans of amateurs here at cultural debris. So <laughs> amateurs are good. And it comes from the Latin word amare, which means to love. Right, exactly. And so it's, it, it it's that passion. I mean, how he has that, um, and it comes through in your article. So, so well, he, he has that love and passion for those objects in a way that uh, somebody studying them maybe in this sort of a dry academic way just doesn't just doesn't get just doesn't have that they're you know it doesn't matter what what that rose is that's not part of the story we're not we're not going to pay attention to that right yeah and i i get it in some regards because it's a you know it's not easy to have a career in academia you know there's very few positions there's not a lot of money and people really, you got to jump through all of the hoops in just the right way in order to get there. And even that's not guaranteed. When people do achieve those positions, they guard them with their lives. And sure. the gatekeeping is really, really intense. And, and that's really the thing that's being most challenged right now. Although, unfortunately, I think it's too late for a lot of systems. But yeah, um, it always, you know, sort of disappointed me because, again, I would want to sort of look around at people and say, you know, we're not, we're not neurosurgeons, folks. We're not lives. <laughs> we're studying art. We're here as ambassadors for truth and beauty. We've, let's have some fun, right? You know, we could be doing other things that might be making more of an impact or solving more critical problems. If we're going to be the ambassadors for truth and beauty, then we should be enjoying it and sharing that with love. Ah, well, there, but there, but there's no more critical problem than truth and beauty, right? <laughs> that's what we, we, that's, that's what our, I feel like that's exactly what our society is lacking. We need more, we need more of that. You know, you, you talked about Howie's um, pursuit of, of the truth on this. I was, I was really struck by, uh, you mentioned in the article that, that he took all of these trips to, uh, to France, just, I, I suppose, just sort of self-funded research trips to, to try to piece these things together. That's, that's real dedication. Yeah, he did. And there is a, another 
gentleman who I just call the French Howie. <laughs> and his, his name is <laughs> Jackie Lorette. And he has a website actually at, uh, well, I don't think he actually has it anymore. It was like an old GeoCities website. Uh -huh. But he was really fascinated by the tapestries, the other set of unicorn tapestries that are at the Cluny Museum in Paris. And he somehow hooked up with Howie and they would do these research trips together. And Howie would go to France with him. And I, I may be incorrect on this, but I feel like this man was also a retired school teacher. And they really like they went around and they knocked on curators doors. And one of the things Howie said was that the curators in France were much more open and willing to talking with him. He spoke hmm. perfect French also. So I think that was impressive to them as well, that, you know, somebody who's the security guard speaks French so well. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so he said he wound up having like, you know, he'd knocked on doors at like the Louvre and curators were willing to like come downstairs and have coffee with him and talk with him in a really friendly way. Uh, and then Jackie came to New York and they spent like three months. Jackie just stayed with Howie and they like spent like three months looking at the tapestries and sharing all sorts of ideas and they agreed on a lot of things and they really disagreed on a lot of things. But I thought as he was telling me these stories, just how amazing it was to have this friend, you know, to just bat these ideas around intellectually um, and just, you know, really fall into this, this mutual shared interest of theirs. But there's just so few people I know who really, I mean, who has the time? <laughs> it feels right, like, true. unfortunately now, right? To, really quite a luxury. And I, I think, you know, part of that was because Howie did have a job where he could kind of just clock in and clock out. And that is harder and harder to find these days. You talked in the article or sort of leave um, uh, towards the, the end of the article, sort of leave the impression that Howie may not have been doing well and so forth. But you mentioned earlier that that he uh, that he is hale and hearty. So uh, so how how is Howie uh, for those who read the article? Yeah, he's doing fine. He lives in the Midwest with some family now. He did leave the museum in the, under sort of strange circumstances. He was having some health challenges at the time. And then there was a rumor that he had cancer. And then he just sort of disappeared. And Howie was the kind of guy who never had a phone. <laughs> he never he uh, just couldn't be bothered. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was somebody who was just really interested in what he was interested in. And that was it. Um, he, he didn't deal with he didn't let himself get bothered by a lot of stuff. Anything that was a distraction <laughs> kind of was like, oh, whatever. I don't need that. Right. So he kind of disappeared, really. And and the other gentleman who is in the article, who's who I call Hank, that's not his real name, but he still works at the cloisters and security guards are not allowed to identify their real names to the public. Uh, he was a really close friend of his. And at one point he hadn't heard from him for a while. And he just went and knocked on his door and, and found out that he had left. So, yeah, there was some time there where, we, where people thought he was really sick and something had happened to him. But then uh, he turned up again and he's living in the Midwest. And when I had talked to him, he said he'd, he'd really discovered the Internet because he also never had a computer and had no interest in he didn't have a, he didn't even have a landline. He certainly had no interest in having an iPhone or anything like that. Right. But, yeah. When we first got in touch. You know, he surprised me as usual. He said, oh, my gosh, I've started watching The Sopranos. What a masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole world out there. Whole uh, world out there, yeah. So he was yeah, and now, and now all all the uh, the great, the great uh, opportunity to unlock the tapestry secrets will be destroyed by, um, by The Sopranos, by too much Sopranos binge watching. 
yeah. <laughs> all, all will be lost. <laughs> yeah, we wound up having a long talk about that because I, I, I'm a big Sopranos fan, actually. You know, I'm Italian-American from this part of the world, so it, it's a resonant show with me. And, you know, we were talking about all the big themes and the the operatic ideas and the mythological references. I mean, no matter what you're talking about with Howie, it's always going to go to a level that you don't expect and that's going to shed light on on things in a way you hadn't anticipated. Well, I do appreciate you writing the article. It was really, I mean, when it, when it came out um, in, in the 2020, I was uh, uh, just really blown away by it. It was really fascinating and um, just uh, such a great window into, uh, into so much, um, you know, that we're used to just seeing these things sort of hang on, hang on the walls, but there's, um, you know, there's all this, all this mystery and wonder and intrigue behind them. If you actually, uh, start to scratch under the surface a little bit. Yeah, there was so much to be said. And, and I think, you know, so much of so much of any museum, really, there's more far more mystery behind these works of art than any of the scholarship or the wall text will let on. <laughs> Everything. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> the, yeah, the wall text that keeps getting shorter and shorter. Yeah, the so shorter it is the more mystery there is behind it. <laughs> You uh, you also have uh, have an interest in in food. Uh, you have your uh, your feast on history uh, project. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, well, I've just changed the name of our company to Feast Travel, and I really focus on travel in Southern Italy. Um, food and wine tours are really our primary product, but we do we do the whole thing. Um, of course, you know, in Italy, food and culture are far more integrated than they are in the United States, where these tend to be still in separate buckets. So that that's changing, I think, too. But um, understanding the origins of, of food, um, the traditions and, you know, especially just where they come from has always been something fascinating to me. I mean, it, it's just the ultimate anthropology, in my opinion. And Southern Italy is a place that is so full of amazing wonderful untapped resources of course i love florence venice and rome all of italy every town in italy is a wonder but really so much of southern italy is undiscovered and unfortunately i'm just tragically attracted to mystery so <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah that's not a bad thing at all we're uh, i'm i'm pro mystery uh, as well uh, on the podcast so yeah. so that's a good thing uh, are you are you planning travel this year or are things opening back up for you yeah, things have, things have been sort of open in fits and starts. We did have a few private tours last summer, and, and then the world shut down again for Omicron. But I'm going to be there in May. I'm leading two tours. One is a, a food writer's retreat, which I'm doing in cooperation with, with two food writers, Domenica Marchetti, who's a cookbook author, and Kathy Gunst, who is on uh, NPR. And then after that, I'm doing a tour that's called The Cilento Secret, because I love mystery. And it's a primarily a food and wine tour focused in a part of Italy called the Cilento, which is just immediately south of Amalfi. You actually overlook the Amalfi Coast. You can see the island of Capri from the, the, the hotel where we're staying, which is owned and operated by my Italian cousins. This is the town where my grandmother is from. Oh, nice. And wonderful. yeah, it's, it's a wonderful place because it's just like the Amalfi Coast, but without all of the cruise ships and the big chain hotels, it's part of a national park. And the, this is an area of Italy that is most famous for, well, a few things, the temples at Pestum, Buffalo mozzarella, and the Mediterranean diet, which was officially first 
sort of observed and studied in Chilento. And it's a, a, a blue zone where there's a high percentage of centenarians and scientists from all over the world continue to study what it is about the diet in this part of Italy that makes people live so long. So are you, are you uh, destined to live, uh, live out a century then? You've got the genes for it? I yeah I hope so. I mean, unfortunately, <laughs> both of my my parents are both deceased um, before seventy. But then I have a great grandfather that lived to be a hundred and six. So oh wow! <laughs> it's a, it's a mix. Um, but yeah, cer- certainly there are, and there are many others. I had another a grandmother who lived to be ninety seven, and everybody lamented that she was young when she passed as <laughs> her husband at one hundred and two. So yeah. Oh wow! So yeah, there's much much life uh, left to be lived for sure. So. <laughs> Uh, tell, uh, tell listeners where they can find you online and social media. Um, on Twitter and on Instagram, I am at feast on history. And if you would like to take a look at my website there, uh, that is feasttravel.com. Just all one word feast travel. And I have a newsletter that I write now weekly. It's about looking at Italy's past and ancient sites through a contemporary lens I write that on Substack. It's a completely free subscription. And that's my name, Danielle Oteri at Substack.com. And the name right. of the newsletter is Tante Belle Cose, which means many beautiful things. I will add uh, links to all of those things in show notes so folks can check that too and, uh, and find you hopefully a little more easily. Danielle, thanks very much for being on. I, I enjoyed it. This is a conversation that uh, I was looking forward to. And I certainly also want to direct people to the, to the Paris Review article, which I will link as well. All right. Thank you so much. This is it's always fun to get to talk about unicorns. <laughs> uh, you can't beat it. Absolutely. <laughs> thanks a lot, Danielle. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.